unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant the Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. The Rohingya people have suffered decades of persecution in Myanmar, most recently in 2017, when the country's security forces launched a major crackdown on the minority group, causing more than a million Rohingya to flee that country. While the vast majority of Rohingya sought refuge in neighboring Bangladesh, India has been home to tens of thousands of Rohingya refugees. A new report by the Azadi Project and Refugees International, A Shadow of Refuge, Rohingya Refugees in India, sheds light on the plight of the Rohingya in India, drawing from field visits in both Delhi and Hyderabad. The authors of this new report are Daniel Sullivan and Priyali Sur, and they join me today from Washington and New Delhi, respectively. Dan and Priyali, congrats on the report, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So, Dan, let me start with you and just ask you a very uh, big picture question. Uh, your report, of course, is on Rohingya refugees residing in India. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of their situation, I'm wondering if you could just kind of refresh our, our, our collective memories a bit. Uh, who are the Rohingya? Why is it that more than one million of them have had to flee their homes in Myanmar? Sure. Um, most people will probably be familiar with uh, the Rohingya as the victims of genocide in August 2017 at the hands of the Myanmar military um, authorities. Um, the, but this goes back decades of the Rohingya being one of the most persecuted uh, people in the world. They're a, a small Muslim minority in a mostly uh, Buddhist country in Myanmar, um, and over decades of uh, military rule have been, um, you know, have, have been abused and at different times uh, attacked and had to flee, hundreds of thousands flee the country. Um, but the biggest uh, exodus came in August 2017 and the months that followed, where we saw more than 700,000 that fled into Bangladesh for refuge. Um, and they remain in what is today the, uh, the largest refugee settlement in the world. But what's lesser known is that there are uh, other Rohingya refugees that have fled to other countries, uh, and that includes India, where there are at least 20,000. And so we wanted to just uh, try to shine a light on on this particular population um and uh as as a microcosm of the broader uh failure um not only to address the the basic problems in Myanmar where they're now a military coup since um you know took place in February 2021 um the failure to address that and and create the conditions safe for Rohingya to go home but also in the meantime um the failure of countries in the in the region countries of refuge to provide the most basic uh, levels of protection. So, so Priyali, let me just kind of ask you to, to help us understand a bit, you know, kind of contextualize for us uh, the, what is going on with Rohingya refugees in India. Um, you know, it's noteworthy that we don't really even have a precise number of how many they are. Uh, the UN High Commission for Refugees, uh, you mentioned the report, registered about 20,000 refugees. I think in 2017, the Indian government reported there were as many as 40,000 back then. Uh, but given that India houses relatively few compared to its neighbor Bangladesh, why do this report and why do this now? 
Uh, so it's a good question, Milan. And my response to that would be, why not India and why not now? Yes, it is not the 800,000 refugees which are in Bangladesh. But 20,000 in India is actually a significant number. It forms the bulk of the refugee population, mostly in India. And the issues that the report raises, be it the issue of arbitrary and indefinite detention of Rohingya refugees in India, or the fact that they are curtailed from the right to education. These are serious issues. Uh, And I would say that if we are talking about people who've been persecuted, who fled violence, and are now being indefinitely detained and languishing in jails, if that's even one person, then it's worth raising in a report. And here we are talking about 20,000. And of course, there are lesser number detained, but we can talk about that more later. It's very important to be covering the what you know where the bulk of the population is both in in Bangladesh and in in Myanmar and um we at, with refugees international and others have covered that and it's been you know well known across the world the population in India is is very much not not so well known and so i think it's it was really important to um add to not not focus on the population in India versus other places but to make sure that they were added to that coverage that already has been going on so, so let me just ask you a quick follow-up on this. I mean, what do we know about when the majority of Rohingya sought refu- uh, refuge in India, and, and where exactly within India are they living today? The Rohingya in India have been coming over a number of years, um, and probably the majority um, somewhere you know, following uh, initial crackdowns and violence in 2012, but especially after you know 2017. Um, and where they're going is mostly uh, to larger cities, um, you know, settlements, um, particularly where there is some affinity in, in terms of religion, uh, Muslim populations. So we see a, a large population in Hyderabad and uh, in, in Jammu, and um, and then there's a, a, a smaller population in Delhi. And again, it's it's kind of driven by where they feel like they might um, face the least kind of backlash and also where there might be some informal um, work opportunities. Um, and, and I just add to it, you see, because India is not a signatory of the Refugee Convention, there are no refugee camps per se in India. These are all settlements, small settlements or big settlements that come up because some foundation or some uh, individual has felt that they would want to give the land to these people. And sometimes they're also charged to rent. So you will see these settlements in really small, dingy, crowded places with really terrible living conditions. Priyali, let me just kind of ask you uh, about this, right? Because I think this is something that's going to surprise a lot of people. India doesn't have a domestic law or even a consistent policy on refugees and asylum seekers, right? And and, and why this is surprising is because the country has famously been home to a number of refugees from virtually all of its neighbors, right? Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, even even Tibet. Um, Do we know why India has resisted you know, historically resisted codifying its policy into some kind of very clear law or uh, regulatory note? So, Milan, this would be an assumption, but from what we have kind of gathered based on our research and our interviews, 
we have found out that different refugee groups in India are given different treatments. Some have more access to different kinds of educational facilities or employment opportunities or even access are given government identity cards and other refugee populations like the Rohingya are denied from these rights or basic human dignity rights. So I think and uh, our assumption would be that India does not want to have a standard policy which is applicable to all refugee populations, irrespective of their religion or irrespective of their ethnicity. They want to make sure that they can change it or they can give out different kind of treatment to different populations. And I think that's been the resistance, uh, perhaps, on, on something like this. And we all know about the Citizenship Amendment Act, which kind of came in in 2019. And the Citizenship Amendment Act kind of just solidified this assumption, the fact that only certain refugees who are either Hindus or Sikhs or Buddhists or Jains who are essentially not Muslims who are coming in in India would be given refuge and their citizenship would be fast-tracked, whereas other refugee populations who are minority re uh, Muslims or even majority Muslims in other countries will not be given any kind of uh, special assistance for asylum seeking or even fast-tracking of citizenship. You know, one of the things that you write in your report uh, when it comes to the situation of the Rohingya in India is that it uh, things have gotten worse in recent years, right? And and you don't date this to a, a political change, you know, the 2014 election when, when the BJP comes to power, but rather to a series of events that started in February of 2017. Priyali, let me just start with you. Why was this period in particular such an inflection point? Um, so in, in 2017... Yes, it was not because of a change of a government, you rightly said, right? It was the second term. Uh, I mean, the BJP government was continuing its uh, its tenure in the in the country. But in 2017, it was a BJP uh, leader in Jammu and Kashmir who actually filed a petition and said that he wanted all the Rohingya refugees in in the region of Jammu to be deported. And so that's where it all started. And that kind of led to more rhetoric around it. We did see a lot of, uh, a lot of hate, a lot of uh, negative statements about Rohingya refugees on social media. Generally in the parliament, we had uh, our cabinet ministers saying things like Rohingya refugees will not be accepted, will not be allowed in the country. That's when even the Supreme Court order kind of uh, you know, Supreme Court was petitioned against the deportation and then it kind of moved on to saying that it would uphold the deportation of Rohingya refugees. So I think 2017 became an inflection point because that this BJP leader had come in and petitioned that Rohingya refugees should be deported. Yeah, I would just add that, um, that that certainly was a turning point, but I think it does go back further, right, um, where there has been this uh, narrative by the BJP on uh, this nationalist and anti-Muslim narrative that, um, unfortunately, for um, for the Rohingya being Muslim and being refugees just made them uh, kind of a, a, an obvious target uh, for that. And so I think that just set the ground for what we've, we've seen in recent years getting worse and worse. Now, what's very interesting is, Priyali, just to, to add to what you said, there there was this sign of maybe some 
intergovernmental squabbles in 2022, we had the Minister for Housing and, and, and Urban Development tweet that the refugees residing in Delhi would be given basic amenities, access to services, only to have walked that back very quickly. Uh, do, do, do you suspect that this was essentially, you know, something he said, which was kind of unauthorized or, or, or not meant for public consumption? So I think you raise a very interesting point and you know, I've humored about it. It's like a, it's like black comedy, right? Because usually you would have the government fight over each other, trying to say, we gave the services to a certain persecuted population or to a vulnerable population. But here you have the central government and you have the Delhi government kind of fighting to say, dude, we didn't give the services. It is you who said that you are giving the services and we didn't. So this is comic, but it's also tragic. We should be giving out housing. We should be giving out basic dignity and human rights and everything that refugee populations who've been persecuted deserve. And over here, we have governments fighting over not giving it to them. So, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the nature of the challenges facing the Rohingya in India, right, which is really what the bulk of your report is about. And, and let me start with the issue of detention. You know, one of the most frequently cited fears raised by Rohingya refugees themselves is this prospect of detention. And, and Dan, may, maybe I'll turn to you first. To the best of your knowledge, you know, how many Rohingya are actually detained? And tell us a little bit about what their conditions are like as they are under detention. Sure. I mean, there are uh, varying estimates, but it's, it's easily in the hundreds of uh, you know, Rohingya that are in detention. Um, it's a little bit muddied because of the definition of what is a detention center versus what uh, Indian authorities call a holding center. Um, but in effect, they're all facing these these rough conditions in, in detention. Um, and Behind this is also the the real risk of deportation or refoulement, which is a, a violation of international uh, common law, of where where people who are fleeing persecution should not be forcibly returned. So anybody who is you know walking along the street as a Rohingya, effectively considered an illegal uh, immigrant, despite fleeing genocide, they can be detained at any time, um, and then with that detention comes the the fear of being deported uh, back to the very uh, military regime that has uh, committed genocide. So that's the real uh, fear that uh, Rohingya face day to day. And maybe I'll turn it over to uh, Priyali to, to talk a little bit about the conditions in detention that we heard from the, uh, from the, the Rohingya refugees, some of them former um, detainees themselves. Thanks, Dan. So to add to that, uh, we're actually following a recent Delhi High Court case, which is petitioning the Delhi High Court to release a 21, 22-year-old mother who was detained indefinitely in April 2020. In fact, the report has interviewed the sister who has petitioned this uh, the Delhi High Court. And in that, we clearly they clearly talk about, the court case clearly talks about the living conditions in the detention center. They're not allowed any kind of sunlight. They're not allowed to go outside. Uh, the lack of sunlight leads to extreme mobility issues because of lack of the de deficiency of vitamin D, the food conditions are really bad. Um, but again, to highlight here, the, the human rights lawyers or the 
advocates who are fighting these cases of indefinite detentions in the courts are not saying that don't deport them. Yes, they should not be deported. But even according to the government of India, internal orders, which Dan and I have accessed and have seen, it says that you cannot indefinitely detain anybody beyond three months. And if you are detaining, if you want to monitor somebody beyond three months, you release them, you take the biometrics, they will come regularly to the police station, and you will be able to kind of monitor their movements till Myanmar and the government of India talk until they are deported. So fine, if you want to deport them, deport them, but do not detain them indefinitely in inhuman conditions. That's against international laws. That's against the constitution of India. So just to add to that, um, Priyali mentioned this uh, this court case and what that led to was an investigation of the conditions and some instructions that they needed to be improved. And so one of the things in the report that we're calling for is that the um, National Human Rights Commission and working with uh, international, you know, the UN uh, Office of, of High Commissioner for Human Rights um, or an, another international ombudsman join together to do a, a broader investigation of the conditions of detention uh, in India. I just want to follow up on this issue of, of deportation, right? Because it looms over refugees in many countries, not just India. Um, you know, Dan, you mentioned earlier that returning Rohingya to Myanmar is a violation of this international principle of non-refoulement. Uh, you know, basically means countries aren't supposed to repatriate refugees to their home countries if there's a credible threat of harm when they do so. You, you know, Priyali, I understand it that there this is an issue that the Supreme Court in India has weighed in on. You know, how have they ruled? Okay, so very, so very surprisingly, because. In the past, we've always seen the judiciary uphold human rights. So very surprisingly, when this was, uh, shockingly rather, when this was taken up at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court actually said that the fundamental right uh, to settle in India is only available to its citizens. Um, and in doing so, it kind of, it's it's questionable because, again, we need to talk about the acts or the policies in place, such as the Citizenship Amendment Act, if settling in India is only available to citizens, then shouldn't citizenship be seen or fast-tracked for all kind of persecuted populations, including the Rohingya refugees? Why should it be uh, fast-tracked for only a certain religious or uh, religious population or ethnicity? Uh, and the other thing I think that... Uh, the Supreme Court kind of mentioned is that they kind of underlined what the Indian government had said was that the Rohingya refugees pose as a threat to internal security of the country. And if you're talking about them as a threat to the internal security of the country, by then not monitoring them, which is what they're doing now, and kind of illegally detaining them, indefinitely detaining them, we're not improving the internal security of the country in any way. In fact, if you monitor them, if the UNHCR is allowed to register them, if they're allowed to go in and give their biometrics at police stations, at regular frequent intervals, that's when you will actually monitor the internal security and enhance the national security. Uh, by doing what you're doing now, you're only increasing uh, all kinds of threats, right? We talk about, and this is not just us talking, we talk about factors that have led to extremism in the past. If you take somebody and put them into detention or in inhuman conditions, that's when you give rise to issues like extremism, not when you give them basic rights and human dignity. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that that um, 
you know, in addition to the, you know, the international principle of non-refoulement um, that we just spoke about, uh, the government of India has uh, signed on to various uh, international agreements which enshrine that principle as well. Um, and we've spoken to many um, Indian uh, legal experts who uh, also make the argument that uh, within the Indian constitution, there is a, um, you know, there's a right to life that also obligates the government not to be returning people to places where they, they face a credible fear of death. I, I just want to add to that, that every time the case of deportation is raised in, in 2021, the Supreme Court said deport them after consultations with the government of Myanmar. We are talking about a population that is persecuted by the government of Myanmar or by the Myanmarese authorities. We are talking about see, asking them if these the embassy in Myanmar, we are asking them that these people are refugees or these people are from Myanmar. That process is going to go on forever and ever. Even now, most of these cases, we've not heard any response. So we are basically saying that these people will remain in indefinite detention in terrible inhuman conditions till any kind of discussion between the government of India or the Myanmarese government happens. And that itself is questionable. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I mean, I just want to kind of pick up on this question of of their conditions and their access to kind of amenities and, and goods and services. You know, one of the things the report documents is whether we're talking about education, basic health, uh, livelihood opportunities, one of the key impediments that you point to is refugees' lack of access to an Aadhaar card, right? And as, as most of our listeners will know, an Aadhaar number has become vital for accessing most public, in fact, many private services in India. Um, but you also document, and this is somewhat curious, that refugees with UNHCR cards, valid uh, cards from the United Nations, are also not able to access services. And I'm wondering, uh, Priyali, maybe I'll start with you and then turn over to Dan, you know, unpack this for us, right? So, 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 so what are they able to access and not able to access in their current situation? Uh, they are able to access primary educational centers, so the right to education is up to 14 or 15 years in India. Up till that, it's possible. But any kind of senior higher education, which is 10th grade onwards, becomes very difficult. In fact, a person who we spoke to, a woman who we spoke to during the research, and in fact, many of them said that she was preparing for her 10th grade exams and was really ready to go and give those. But when she was stopped from writing those exams because she did not have an Aadhaar card, if you don't have an Aadhaar card, you cannot get a job which is not a daily wage laborer job. You can get the daily wage laborer jobs, but how much does that give you? That is about 150 to 500 rupees, which is about $7. And that is nothing. If you don't give access to education, higher education to younger, the, the, new, the new generation, then they're never even going to be able to access the jobs where they can get highly paid. So we are basically not just ruining the present generation, we are ruining the next generation. We're not giving them education, we're not giving them lack to, lack access to jobs. Uh, what they can access, sorry was your question, is uh, primary education, 
uh, access to primary health care centers in some places, not in all places. We've heard of cases where from some primary health care centers, they were sent away. Some pregnant women were sent away and they were not allowed to birth their children. And that led to miscarriages and also stillbirths. Um, so it is varied because there is no standard policy. It is varied. An educational institute can give admission if they want. They can say no. A primary health care center can say, okay, we'll give you services. They can say no. There is no law. There's no policy. But, Pirelli, could I just, could I just push you a little bit on this, uh, which is, you know, if, if a refugee in India has a valid registration card given to them by the UN body which governs refugees, and that is supposed to be recognized uh, by whichever country is acting as the host country, uh, what is the government of India's argument to say, actually, you know, this doesn't qualify as an acceptable form of local identification? So I'm just going to uh, not verbatim because I don't have the report here, but I'm going to read out. I'm going to tell you what the government of India in the response to the Delhi High Court case last month said. They said we do not recognize UNHCR refugee cards because they are not we, we are not signatory of the Refugee Convention. So if they say that in a submission to the Delhi High Court, it is it is totally depend depending on the institution that the refugee carries the UNHCR card if they accept it or they don't accept it. I We just did a local visit to Taj Mahal with, with some members of the refugee group. They could not even access entrance to Taj Mahal on the UNHCR card. They were treated as foreign citizens. They had to pay for the foreign uh, entrance. That's just a small example. Nobody, I mean, nobody's life will end if they don't see Taj Mahal. But if they can't get access to good health care and they can't get access to good education, that's where we are questioning things like livelihood and what can happen to their lives. Yeah, this all goes back to the lack of a clear policy um, from the center, because uh, what it does is it allows local authorities to have some ambiguity. And sometimes they do allow, um, you know, allow Rohingya refugees to come in and access primary education. Sometimes they allow um, women to access um, health centers to give birth. Uh, but sometimes they don't. And what they can point to is they say, well, we, we you don't have an ATAR card or, or uh, in the past, the UNHCR card had allowed some some level of recognition. And now there's that pushback, as Priyali mentioned, where um, the government of India has said UNHCR cards are of no consequence. They do not they do not give you access to services. They do not give you access to an Aadhaar card. Um, and that's really a, a key uh, element of, of the status of Rohingya right now in the country. If they were to be given either recognition of the UNHCR cards or some uh, special uh, Aadhaar cards or, or some kind of card that says, and, and that the center comes out and says, these are people who are residents of uh, of India, then they would that would open up the ability to have all those kinds of uh, services and would take away the ability for local authorities um, to arbitrarily uh, deny them um, even the, the, the basic services that they're um, supposed to be able to access. You know, the report mentions that there is shrinking support for the Rohingya in India. And, and to support this claim, you point to the fact that the NGO and civil society representatives uh, who are advocating on their path all cite fear of retaliation for speaking up too loudly on behalf of this refugee population. Um, uh, uh, wondering if one of you could just help 
describe for us, you know, why is it that advocates' voices have gotten softer rather than louder over time? Sure. We spoke with several groups that have uh, worked with the Rohingya in the past or continue to in uh, refugees more generally. Um, and for obvious reasons, we we do not mention them by name in the report. Uh, but they all told us that, uh, you know, they they fear uh, retaliation. And, and the number one uh, way that they see it is they they lose the permissions to receive foreign funding uh, for their for their projects. And so those who had who work with refugees generally in India are avoiding projects with the Rohingya or uh, they're avoiding speaking out when they see things that are going on or, or getting involved with detention cases and, and things like that. Um, and what I think it, it comes down to a broader you know, trend in, in India where there's a pushback against any kind of criticism. But then there's a particular sensitivity to, um, you know, to this, this status of Rohingya in the country. Um, so unfortunately, uh, even as uh, the, you know, the, the crackdown on Rohingya and, and the issues of de- detention, deportation are getting, uh, getting hotter, getting worse, uh, at the same time, those voices that in the past had been able to speak up for the Rohingya have been, uh, have been threatened and intimidated. So I want to kind of move this conversation uh, to a place where we can kind of look kind of into the future a bit. You know, uh, you know, one of the key aspects of this report is is you know, uh, you know, how do we resolve the situation? The report argues that Indian politicians have used national security, Priyali had mentioned this earlier as well, as a reason for why the country doesn't want to accept Rohingya refugees. In the report, I found it really interesting. You argue that a written policy on refugees in India would actually enhance national security interests, right? So it kind of flips the traditional argument on its head. Priyali, let me ask you about this. You know, why would this actually be something that is net positive for India's national security interests? I think I'm just going to reiterate what I said earlier, and I'm going to let Dan add to that. But if somebody is if a refugee comes in into India and India, you know, lets them register with UNHCR legally and then gives them government identification cards, which can be easily trackable, and then they ask them to go to police stations and give their biometrics frequently, whether it's monthly, whether it's once in two months, it's easy to monitor the whereabouts of the person. That is how you kind of make sure that your internal security situation is taken into control. Um, In addition to that, putting people who are already victimized in jails, in inhuman conditions, in indefinite detention, actually can cause issues of uh, animosity. That may lead to issues of I'm not saying in this case, but we've seen it in the past. It has led to issues of extremism. So you don't want to give, build a situation like this, or you don't want to kind of have a situation like this, which raises more issues of internal security. You want to stop it. You want to create a community, a host community, which is more welcoming. But but Dan, please feel free to add to it. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the main main point is that the, the current system incentivizes people to stay underground, to stay under the radar, um, and then the lack of opportunities, um, the, the lack of building resilience within the community can lead to negative coping mechanisms and, and turn to crime or, or um, you know, just making things, whereas, whereas if you are supporting these populations, uh, they can actually positively um, 
contribute to to the society. And uh, and so that's that's really where we, we see it as the argument that this is really should be in the interest of the government of India and, and all countries who are hosting uh, refugees. Now, Dan, the, the, the parliamentarian Shashi Tharoor has twice introduced a private member bill that would enact a national law on refugees and asylum seekers. I think the first time was in 2015. I think he's reintroduced it in 2021 or 2022, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in your view, would this bill constitute a reasonable path forward? And, and, and is there any support for it that you can detect? I mean, Private member bills uh, rarely pass. I think the last one passed in 1971. But they're often used as a way to stimulate the government into enacting a policy. Um, What's your take on that? Yeah, it's significant because it gets to that very core question of uh, status for Rohingya and other refugees in the country and for having that clear policy that we've talked about is lacking you know, for what is uh, available to to refugees in the country and, and providing basic protections and access to services. So uh, in that regard, it, yeah, it would it would be a, a, a major step forward. Um, but you're right. Also, it's it's the political winds are against it. Um, so it, but it does not have to be that the, the Modi administration could do a lot on its own to just uh, develop these policies. So uh, it's both a a, a standing um, set of policies that could be adopted, um, and, and a roadmap for what the, uh, administration could do. And so, um, in those respects, it's really, really important. And that's why we highlight it in the report. So I want to end by bringing in foreign policy, right? So you note that India has always struck uh, this very careful balancing act with the ruling regime in Myanmar. It has never looked for ways to antagonize the military junta there. At the same time, the United States, one of India's key partners, has been one of the biggest assistance providers uh, to the Rohingya of any donor country. Uh, We know looking into the summer, there's going to be a series of high-level visits uh, between senior Indian and U.S. officials, not least the prime minister's own state visit to Washington in June. Um, Dan, let me start with you, and then Priyali, please feel free to weigh in. If you were advising the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, or the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, uh, what is it that you would like them to do on this particular issue? Yeah, it's a great question. I, and and I, I just first emphasize that there are these series of uh, high-level meetings coming up, and there is this interest uh, from the Indian government, both uh, both in terms of the U.S., um, relationship, but also this image of, you know, the India was very um, active on the uh, global convention on refugees uh, and will be part of the the, the um, global refugee uh, uh, meeting that's coming up later this year. So I think there's a lot of opportunities here. In terms of the, the recommendations for what the U.S. should be, be saying to India, I think it starts with just making clear that Rohingya, that refugee treatment, uh, is is on the agenda. You know, this is something that is important to the U.S. in the relationship. Um, we recognize there's a lot of other issues, of geopolitical issues, relationships with balancing with China, um, but it has to be made clear that this is this is going to be on the table and something that affects the relationship. In terms of the, I think there's some some very like kind of uh, low hanging fruit types of things that uh, you know the Indian government could do very quickly and the U.S. could push them for. One of those is on Providing providing exit permissions for refugees in the country who are already uh, accepted in third countries for resettlement, um, but the Indian government has not yet allowed them uh, to leave. So I think that's number one pushing for something like that. 
And then number two, just pushing back on the on the the most egregious kinds of uh, the things that that India is doing, and um, that includes the you know forced deportation, the refoulement of uh, Rohingya refugees uh, to back to Myanmar, and it, and this gets to um, the U.S. government's recognition of what happened to the Rohingya as genocide, and uh, Secretary Blinken's commitment to a building a road, a path out of genocide. So I think bringing that to the Indian authorities and saying, this is really important to us. We've called this genocide. We really take this seriously. And forcing people to go back to that genocidal regime uh, will be unacceptable. And then from there, I think you can you can push to, to some of the more granular things that we, we've talked about, um, about allowing for status of the Rohingya and investigations into the detention um, uh, conditions. Uh, but yeah, the, the but but to bring it back, just the, the main general thing is put them on notice that this is an issue that will be important to the U.S.-India uh, relationship. I mean, I'll just add to that, that U.S. and India are great allies, have been great allies for a very long time on various issues, be it trade and also security now in the region. We look at the Quad, we look at various uh, security issues. We also both claim to be democracies, the oldest democracy and the biggest democracy. And so our constitutions are very similar. Both our constitution upholds the dignity, the right to life. And so I think we should talk at that level. Let's protect persecuted populations in our country. Let's give them refuge. And um and yeah, let's let's not build a situation where they have to be deported. My guests on the show this week are Priyali Sur of the Azadi Project and Daniel Sullivan of Refugees International. Together, they are the authors of A Shadow of Refuge, Rohingya Refugees in India. Priyali, Dan, thank you for coming on the show. This is an issue that has not gotten a lot of attention in India. And I think uh, a lot of our listeners might be surprised to know that um, it, it's a place where actually the, the courts have weighed in, um, uh, politicians have weighed in, but there's still this outstanding question of, of what to do with these 20,000 and more refugees who are still inside India. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Milan. Thank you for having us. Grant Abasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.